Over the last few months, I specifically asked you to be praying that God would put two people on your heart for who you might want to disciple. And we talked about how to ask and find them out of the the natural relationships you have. But now we come today to go time. It's time to start. It's time to put it into practice. And this is where it gets scary. This is where the, the, the heart starts to beat faster. Well, I don't know if I can. I don't know. So I'd like to start with looking at John 21. Turn there, if you would. John 21, verse 15. John 21, verse 15. And the scene is after the death and resurrection of Christ, and and Christ is on the beach one morning, and the disciples are out fishing, and and He's cooking up some breakfast over a fire, and and Peter's out there, and they're coming back, and, and Peter sees that this is Jesus, the resurrected Christ. And he, as he was prone to do, just jumps out of the boat. Let's go. He puts on his outer garment. He comes up and he rushes to Jesus. But understand the larger context of what the last interaction between Jesus and Peter was. See, the last time that they had significant interaction with each other or, or, or personal interaction was during the trial of Jesus in a courtyard as Jesus is walking by and Peter is in front of a fire and he had just denied Christ for the third time. And in fact, on the third time he said, hey, curse me, let, let heaven curse me if I know him. And so this was not just a, oh, I don't know him. This was a blatant, direct denial of his Lord and Savior that he had just spent three years of his life with. Imagine where Peter was at wondering what that next conversation with Jesus was going to be. I know when I was a child and I did things that I knew Dad knew about, I knew what that next conversation was going to be. And I avoided it every chance I got. And so Peter knows what he has done. He knew it when Jesus looked at him in that courtyard and the rooster crowed. And we come to John 21 to a story of of a Simon Peter that God intends to disciple the church, to start the church, to do significant things for the kingdom. But we come to him as a man who has every excuse in the world not to serve. Who has every reason to say, I have failed. I have let my Lord down. He can't use me. So we come to verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young and you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, 
you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And we have an incredible story here where Jesus has just took on the sins of the world, paid for them with his death, conquered death through his resurrection. And he finds time to be cooking breakfast on a beach to restore Peter. To disciple, but to equip Peter to disciple. The first point in your notes, if we're going to move forward with discipleship, if we're going to be part of go time, is we need to deal with anything that's holding us back. Deal with anything holding you back. Don't let anything stop you. And this interaction between Jesus and Peter was a specific interaction to re-engage Peter. To say, it's go time. It's time to, to minister again. To not let your failure stop you. And so Jesus reinstates him by a fire with three questions, just like he didn't, was denied three times with three questions. And he says, do you love me? Do you love me? We can come to discipleship and say, you know, I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified. I haven't had Bible college. I haven't had seminary. You know what? I even sinned last week. Yes, we all did. Because the power of discipleship doesn't come from being experts in in God's Word. The power comes by showing that we love God and walk with Him and that we're able to ask for forgiveness and repent. And so the first, the first question Jesus asks him is the question that we have, is your love for Jesus more important than anything else? It's the first qualification of discipleship, of being able to disciple others. Is your love for Jesus more important than anything else? In verse 15 there, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Catch the next phrase. More than these. More than these. Probably referring to more than any of the guys standing here. More than the the career that you had with fishing. More than anything else, do you love me? And if we're going to be ready to disciple, that's the qualification. If we can't come to Christ and say, I love Him more than anything else, then that's the first step of being ready to disciple is getting our heart right. Getting our love for God right. We can focus on inadequacies and and we all have them. Every parent has them when you parent your children, but you know what? We still have to parent. Even though we make mistakes and even though we fall We parent and prayerfully we do that out of a a deep love for Christ. And it's amazing how the process of discipleship will help you grow. Will help you, not just those you disciple. And so Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And then he says, then it's time to go. It's time to feed my sheep. It's time time to tend my flock. You don't have to make it up to me. You don't have to somehow wash my donkey or something else to pay for the sins. Love me. 
he says, and serve me. See, that love assumes a trust. It assumes a dependence. A desire to give, get, for Peter to give himself to Christ. It's a powerful question. It's not a feeling like, do you feel that you love me right now? It's a choice to say, I choose to love you. I choose to act in that way. And so Peter is faced with a choice that Jesus pounds in and brings home three times. Second question that Jesus asks him or asks us, but as he's talking to Peter, are you willing to serve others rather than self? Are you willing to serve others rather than self? See, the instructions for Peter were all about serving others. Feed my sheep. Tend or shepherd my flock. Whereas the sin that Peter had fallen into, and we see him fighting this throughout his life, is of self-dependence and self-preservation. Why did he deny Christ in that courtyard? He didn't want to die. He didn't want to be tortured. He was preserving self. And so self was more important than a love for God. And so Jesus' instruction to him directly counters that. Because if if Peter now is to be about tending the sheep, feeding the sheep, his focus must be on the sheep, not on self. And he must be willing to sacrifice self to do that. We may say, well, yeah, I'd love to disciple, but that is way outside my comfort zone. That is something that I... It's not my personality. It's not something I should do. Well, that comes to a, a... a focus on self rather than the task, the mission that God has given us. And so Peter is given the mission to tend sheep. We are told in Matthew 28 and throughout the New Testament, disciple others. Disciple others. I love what Jesus instructs them to do. The feed my sheep is to, to teach them. To Feed them God's Word. Tend my flock. The word there is for shepherd. And it goes far beyond teaching, but to care for, to watch out for. A shepherd will take care of an injured sheep, will make sure sheep has food, will will guide the sheep. And that is what God Almighty is asking Peter to do in spite of his failure, in spite of his weakness. He will give the strength. third question that the passage asks us, will you count the cost? Will you count the cost? Because it will cost you. Verses 18 and 19. In verses 18 and 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And We read that, we're like, okay, so someone else puts our coat on for us. But the wording there was was a a word picture of crucifixion. And so when they used the words, you will stretch out your hands, everybody knew what that meant. It meant death by crucifixion. And so what Jesus is saying there is, when you're young, you got to do what you wanted, but when you're old, you are going to be crucified. You're going to be led where you don't want to go and die on a cross. We know from church history Peter was in fact crucified. 
Some traditions would say he was crucified upside down. It's hard to tell for sure. But we know that this came through. And and it's interesting that Jesus then says, follow me. And, And so he says, okay, you were about yourself with the denial, but now here's what's going to happen if you follow me. You're going to be crucified. Ready? Let's go. What's your decision? And so Jesus is combating the idea of, I, I don't, I can't count the cost. It still is about me. Sometimes we come to discipleship and we say, well, I can't do that because I don't have the time. Or I, I, I would have to give something up to do that. And then we have to evaluate, what are we giving up? Is it part of God's mission? Are we willing to count the cost? Jesus is asking Peter, be willing to even die. To follow me. To serve me. To make disciples. It's interesting, Jesus is asking Peter these questions in front of the other disciples. I can't picture that. I can't imagine that. But Jesus is restoring him and giving him opportunity to not let anything stop him. A man that everything could have stopped. And Jesus saying, don't let anything hold you back. Is your love for Jesus more important than anything else? Are you willing to serve others rather than self? Will you count the cost? And then Peter comes to a decision point in verse 19. Says this, he said, he being Jesus, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Speaking of the crucifixion. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Follow me. And whenever you see Jesus saying, Follow me, he is inviting someone into a discipleship relationship that in their culture they understand well and they knew that it was a rabbi disciple relationship. It was a commitment, it was a choice to follow that person. And so after the three years and after the failure, Jesus comes back and says, you know what, it's going to cost you more. What do you choose? It's go time. What do you choose? Follow me. And so as we come to discipleship, we also realize that discipling others and being discipled is a commitment is a commitment. And we, we, I want to outline some of the responsibilities of a discipler and responsibilities of a disciple that we find throughout Scripture. But we have to be committed to make it work. Anyone play golf? few people. Okay, golf is a bad example. Anyone play baseball? <laughs> Softball? Okay, what happens if you're not committed to your swing? You're just sort of like, okay, I'm coming, and you're like, yeah. What happens? You strike out, right? Or, or you, you hit it to the pitcher and, yeah. You, you have to be committed to your swing. And the same thing in golf. If you're not committed to the swing, you'll miss the ball. It happens a lot. But I, the same is true of discipleship. If we don't make a commitment to it, if we, if we approach it haphazardly, if we say, oh, you know what, I'm going to do this sometimes, if we don't make a commitment to it, it doesn't work. It's something that we have to be fully committed to. The same is true of parenting. What happens if you say, you know what, I'm going to parent on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday this week? 
Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, and Sunday, you know what, I have other things to do. But the kids are good because I gave them three days this week. Now, those of you that are parents are looking at me like, oh, well, please don't say you do that. Because parenting is a full-time job. It's something that you have to commit to to do well. And it costs, and it's hard. Same is true of discipleship. It's something that we have to commit to. That we have to hear the words, follow me, tend my sheep, feed my flock, and say, I'm going to commit to the mission. And point number two in your notes is we have to commit to the mission. We have to count the cost. And when we think of what that cost is in our context, in the discipleship context, what are the responsibility of the discipler, the one that's going to come alongside and disciple others? The first thing is a commitment to care. Discipleship is more than a program or a stamp in your Bible. It's a commitment to care for that person, to invest in their life. If you choose to disciple someone and they know that it's just a duty and you could care less about them as a person, they, they'll sniff that out a mile away. It's a commitment to care. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8 passage we studied on Mother's Day. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. If you're going to disciple and respond, it's a commitment to care. It's part of counting the cost. Second commitment of the discipler, it's a commitment to lead. It's a commitment to lead, to instigate, to take responsibility for the group to meet, to invite, to make sure the focus stays on discipleship. And while it's okay to talk about baseball, it's not the focus. 2 Timothy 2.2 is a picture of Paul instructing Timothy, his disciple, how to start discipling others who will then disciple others. And he says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And we see a picture of Paul saying, Timothy, take charge of of the, the process. Entrust it to other men, which means you're choosing, you're you're passing it on intentionally, you're leading. So responsibility of disciple of a discipler is a commitment to lead. It's a commitment to model. A commitment to model. The primary way we teach someone how to be a disciple is to be a disciple. To model what it looks like to walk with God. To model a dependence on the Holy Spirit who causes the growth. We just plant, we water, we don't cause the growth. In Deuteronomy 6-7 we read, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. In 1 Corinthians 11-1, Be imitators of Me as I am of Christ. And we see the picture of discipling your family in the Old Testament, the picture of discipleship in the church in the New Testament is that of modeling and imitation. Follow the leader. So as a discipler, you're making a commitment to model. 
You can teach all you want about how to walk with God, and if you're not walking with God, they will learn what you do, not what you say. And that's a serious commitment. It's not a commitment to be perfect, but if we fall, if we fail, to come back and say, you know what, I fell, and this is how I repented, and this is how I sought God for forgiveness. And we're modeling how to be in relationship with God. Fourth commitment, fourth responsibility of the discipler is a commitment to mutuality. Proverbs 27.17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. And what I mean by a commitment to mutuality is discipleship is a two-way street. If you go into a discipling relationship and you're going to hold them accountable, guess what they get to do? They get to hold you accountable. In fact, that's modeling. That's how it has to work to be effective. And so it's a commitment to accountability. It's a commitment to the trust and confidentiality that accountability requires. And yes, that can be a little unnerving to think I might have to open myself up to someone else. They might actually know that I struggle sometimes. That I'm not perfect. And I would, I would say this morning that until we get to that place, we can't disciple. As long as we put ourselves on a pedestal and present ourselves as perfect and, and refuse to get real with people, we will not disciple. fifth commitment of the discipler is a commitment to humility. A commitment to humility. The passage we led this morning, just one verse out of that, Luke 9.23, And He said to all, If any would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. It's important that we come into a discipling relationship full of grace realizing how humble we, we are before God because He has given us grace, and then extending that grace to those we're discipling. If you're discipling a new believer, should they act like a new believer or should they act like a mature believer? Obvious question of the day, right? They should act like a new believer. And we show them grace and we bring them along and, and we help them with where they're at. Last night... Um, my kids and I were, were starting to open some boxes for a trampoline we're going to be putting together. And, and Mark is, is trying to copy. Now these boxes are 70 pounds each. And so I'm struggling with this because it's big and bulky. And I finally get one to the other side and I look back and he's over there just trying to drag and push. And Now, now should I be upset with him that he couldn't pull that box over? Son, you need to grow up. Just pick that box up. It's go time. <laughs> no, I should, show, I should realize where he's at and, and help him to the next step. And so I went over and we brought the box over together. We took the lids out to the trash and I'm carrying one and Alicia's helping me with that one because that's what she can do at her stage. And, and I look back and there's this huge box just sort of floating through the garage. <laughs> it was great. You couldn't see Mark at all. You just saw this box floating along. I wish I had a video. You would have thought our, our garage was haunted or something and he was hitting things as he goes and i could get upset i can't believe you couldn't carry that but it's the time to show grace and humility because i've been showing grace and humility so responsibility of a discipler is to extend that kind of humility to those we disciple to see where they're at and to bring them to the next step 
then we have three responsibilities of the disciple. It's not all on the disciple or four responsibilities, sorry. First is a commitment to grow. A commitment to grow. And if you're being discipled or if you're in a mutual discipling relationship, this is shown by a willingness to listen and follow instruction from those in your group with the goal of becoming like Christ. Instruction is worthless if we're closed to hear it. And so the commitment of being discipled is to say, I'm open to the change God has for me. First Corinthians 4, 16 and 7, 17. Paul writes to them, I urge you then to be imitators of me. We see the modeling again. But then that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in, in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. So he says, I'm sending someone to you to instruct, to remind you, to disciple you. Listen to him. Listen to him. Second commitment of a disciple is commitment to priority. We have a commitment to grow and a commitment to priority. Take the discipling relationship seriously and count the cost. If you enter discipleship, you show that by being committed to your meeting times. By showing up. You show that by doing the work ahead of time. If you're reading and discussing a chapter out of a book or a chapter out of the Bible, read it so you can discuss it. So Jesus is looking for disciples to be committed to Him, not just fans of Him. He demands our all. I encourage you this week to read through that Luke 14 passage that I list there. It's a great passage which will burn our hearts on our commitment to Christ. Third commitment is a commitment to ask. Be willing to seek and ask about life in Christ. There are no silly questions. It's a chance to ask and to grow. And finally, the fourth one, a commitment to transparency. A commitment to transparency. We show that by being open and honest even about difficult things. By saying, yeah, you know what? I am struggling this week. I'm struggling with my attitude toward my boss. He's a jerk. It's a safe place to say that because then the others will say, well, let's talk about what a godly attitude is. Then let, we'll pray for you and then we'll ask you next week, how are you doing with that? And discipleship is happening. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so Jesus comes to Peter and asks for a commitment. As we look at discipleship and, and saying we're looking to form discipleship relationships, the heart of that has to be being willing to count the cost and commit to those relationships. Along with your worship folder this morning, you received a discipleship handbook. It has a lot of the things from our different sermons on discipleship, a lot of practical ideas. But partway through towards the back, there's a page that says Discipleship Covenant. And it just summarizes what a covenant to discipleship would look like. And if you decide to form discipleship groups, I would encourage you to go through this the first time you get together. And say, are, are these things we can agree to do? These are the expectations of discipleship. 
If we're not at a place where we can, we, we are willing to commit to these expectations, then let's not do this. But I believe we should raise the bar. And just as Jesus said, follow me, and that meant so much to the disciples, we should say, let's disciple, and this is what it means. Third point this morning, if it's go time, if we're to start discipling relationships, we need to step out in faith and do it. We need to step out in faith and do it, to act on it. Even if it's uncomfortable. To trust that God has given us the mission of discipleship and our response is to obey And so if you've been praying for people and if God has put people in your heart, the next week or two is a great time to ask them to go drive and pick up the kids. To ask them, hey, will you be in a discipling relationship with me? I'd love to get together with you. I'd love to invest in you for the next nine months or a year. See what that does. There's power there. We may say, well, I'm going to do this, but I don't have anything. I don't know how to make them grow. That's not your job. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, and who gives the growth? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. We're just simply his tools, his gardeners. And he causes the growth. And finally, we need to put into practice the marks of a disciple. Trust the marks of a disciple that Jesus laid out in John 15. And this comes back to what we talked about last time we talked about discipleship. We, we laid out eight different ingredients that need to be part of a discipling relationship. And, and when we, today, I, I want to end by just walking through those again and talking about how would you actually do those? How would you put those into practice? The first one you have there is the Word of God. Every discipling relationship must be focused on the Word of God. If that's not part of it, it's fun to get together good fellowship, but it's not discipling. And so every time you get together, you should take 30, 35 minutes, more if you want, and be focused on some sort of a direction of studying God's Word. Maybe that's a book of the Bible. Maybe that's another book that will help us understand Um, different biblical principles, always rooted in Scripture, though. And what I'd recommend you doing if you're going through another book is in your group, you say, okay, we're going to be doing chapter 3 this week. Everyone read chapter 3 before we get together next week. And then when you get together the following week, you take and you you discuss what you learned from chapter 3. Most of the resources we give you have questions to ask. You may say, well, I don't know what questions to ask. So like Disciplines of a Godly Man... That one has study questions. Discipline of a godly woman doesn't, and my wife said that's because you just know what to talk about. But, but, <laughs> and, and she's going through it with some other ladies, and discussion is great. It, it, they're having great discussion without, but for, for, for me, I really am helped by having a list of questions that I can choose from. And so Disciplines of a Godly Man at the end has five, six study questions that then as I'm going through it with some of, some of you men, we talk about those questions. 
and we drive home what those principles, the principles of God's Word, we, we drive it home to application. That's how you incorporate the Word of God. Along with that, Scripture memorization should be part of the discipling relationship. And that's under the ingredient of God's Word again. And I would encourage each group as you get together to take one verse, maybe out of what you've studied, and pick a verse and say, we're going to memorize that verse next week. Because when we memorize God's Word, we, we begin to meditate on it. We internalize it. In Psalm 119, we know that memorizing God's Word is one of the ways that we fight sin because the power of God is fighting it instead of our own efforts. And then come back the next week and spend five minutes and have each person say the verse. Accountability. Put the Word of God as part of your meeting time. Second essential, second essential ingredient is accountability. And we've talked about these, and so I'm more this morning focused on how you would put it into practice. And in accountability, it should be built in to say, we as a group are going to hold each other accountable. And, and often after the study, what you would do is say, okay, what, what do you want to work on this week? And I'll ask you next week how you're doing on it. What can I pray for you about? And, and then you have the kernels of accountability where now someone has taken God's Word, the truth of God's Word, said, this is what I'm convicted about. And now as a brother or sister in Christ, you say, okay, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you. If you need me to call you during the week and encourage you, I will, but I will hold you accountable. This is one of the hardest parts of a discipleship group because we're scared to do this. But I believe this is one of the most effective parts of a discipleship group when we challenge each other to be in God's Word. Third ingredient there is prayer. And every time you get together with your discipleship group, probably at the end is a good place to do it. I'd ask for some prayer requests and then pray for each other. Don't just leave and say, okay, remember to pray for each other this week. In your group, in that time, stop and pray. And you're modeling. You're modeling how to pray. You're modeling the importance of prayer. Fourth ingredient is relationship. Personal, transparent relationships show we care in discipleship. It's not just about imparting information. It's about relationally imparting information. And so usually the start of your time together, you come together as a discipleship group, I would start with this one and say, how was your week? How was work this week? How were things at home? And people will start sharing and go with it. Find out what happened this week. Find out the good things. Find out the, the hard things. Find out birthdays, anniversaries. Celebrate those things together. Those are the stuff of relationship that, that helps us disciple. You may be meeting with a group once a week. I would go so far as saying about once every two months, cancel your meeting and just go do something enjoyable together. Make sure Go to lunch. Go to a Dodger game. Enjoyable. But spend time getting to know each other. It is that important that discipleship happen in the process of accountability. Fifth ingredient, ministry and service. It's part of the core of what we're to be as disciples. And if we never serve together, if we never talk about ministry, we aren't discipling in that area. And so I would challenge you, if you're leading a group, to every week, every couple of weeks, say, how's ministry going? 
If, if they're not in ministry, say, okay, what kind of ministry do you think you'd want to be in? And then go talk to the leaders of those ministries. But also, plan a time where you as a group can go and minister together. Maybe you know of, of someone in the church that has a need for some yard work or a car wash or a meal or something. Plan a time and make that be your discipleship time. We're going to go serve together. That is discipleship. That is probably the most effective mode of discipleship. And so build that into your group. Sixth, reproduction. Discipleship always has a goal of reproducing more disciples. So if you have a time frame, if you're going through a book together that's going to take maybe nine months, about four months in, you should be asking those you're discipling, are you praying for someone? Are you praying for someone you want to disciple? Have you thought about doing what I'm doing with you with someone else? And then about a month before your official time ends, now the, the relationship never ends, but about a month before your official time ends, say, okay, you've been praying about it. Now disciple them how to start a group. So, okay, go ask those people. And have them start their group even before yours is done so that way you can mentor and you can help them do that. It's a practical way of building reproduction into the, the discipleship process. Commitment, we've talked about. Enjoyment, we've talked about. Those are essential parts of discipleship. It's go time. And in that last section, just tried to give some practical tools to say, okay, there's some more ideas for how to do it, but it's about you designing something that works for you to disciple. Mutual discipleship, maybe older teaching the younger, either way will work. But it's go time. It's time for us as a church to say, yeah, we're committed to discipleship and we're going to show that. So I challenge you this week to move beyond just praying about it. To say, Lord God, you've put these people on my heart. Now give me the strength to start, to go. This week, next week. We're not going to take sign-ups. We're not going to pair you up. The Holy Spirit is going to work. I'm excited to see what will happen. There's resources at the end of your packet. We can get those for you if you want. If you want to get those, that's fine. You might be sitting here thinking, okay, I, I, that's all great, but I'm a new believer. I don't know that I can disciple someone yet. I want to be discipled. What if no one asks me? then our role as leaders is to facilitate that. And so let me know. Let one of the elders know. Let Pastor Andrew know. I'd like to be discipled. And we'll make it happen. We'll, we'll find a way to facilitate that and match you up and pair you up. The village, our theme for the year is reproduce, called to disciple. I'm excited what God will do the next three months as we put that into practice. I know some of the groups have already started and some of you are doing this and I praise God for that. But if you're on the sidelines, now is the time to engage and see what God will do. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I pray that you will use the men and women in this church mightily in each other's lives that the body will disciple each other, that we will be about your mission and about your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would 
allay any fears, any concerns, that you would impress on us that it's by your strength and your power. Lord, I pray that you would equip, that would you, you would use these times to deepen our maturity as a church, but also to bring others into the kingdom of God. Lord, we stand at the edge of, of a path that we don't know where it's going to go. But we love you, and we trust you, and we serve you. Can't wait to see what you do, God. In Jesus' name.